My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. Um, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring a Bible, we have some blue Bibles on the, on the ground at the end of the row where you're seated. seated. And uh, Genesis 1 is right at the beginning of the Bible. And uh, let me invite you to stand with me as we read God's word in Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, as we turn our attention to your word, um, as we uh, maybe come to this time and hit pause on the many good and important things going on in our lives, would you help us to truly hear your voice as you speak to us by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, I want to invite you this morning to, to think back or to just bring to mind um, some of the best moments of your life. Um, some of those moments that stand out as uh, those times where, you know, you, the moments you just wish would last forever. Um, immediately, the things that come to my mind are uh, the night that um, we celebrated the, my graduation from seminary. Um, my wife chuckles because uh, she remembers that night. My parents took us out to dinner at an incredibly uh, expensive restaurant overlooking the Edinburgh Castle. We lived in Scotland, and we had a long, lavish meal with some of our best friends. It was ridiculously expensive, and it was wonderful. Um, I think of things like uh, a month or so after my second son was born. We had some friends um, from out of town and uh, who came to visit, and our friend Peter, who's kind of an amateur chef, uh, said, I'm going to cook dinner. And we moved our dining room table out onto the patio, and we just sat there and ate food for hours. And uh, my oldest son, who was not quite two at the time, started calling Peter Bob for some reason. <laughs> Your memories are different. Um, you might be thinking about something that happened recently or a long time ago, something that was a, a simple event or an incredibly expensive, well-orchestrated affair. But regardless of the specifics, when we think about those um, kind of life-defining moments, 
Though the specifics are different, they all have two things in common. They all involve food, and they involve being with people that we love. Um, food, eating, is such a strange thing, isn't it? It's one of the most common things in the world. We do it several times a day. Um, and yet food is incredibly powerful. <clears throat> it's over food that we build relationships and we build community. Um, it's very difficult to build relationships without food or build community without food. Several years ago, um, I, uh, my job, I, we, my family moved to Salt Lake City, Utah to start a campus ministry at the University of Utah. And we gathered this group of students and it was, um, frankly, it was painfully awkward. Every, every gathering we had, it was just, oh my gosh, it was so painful. And um, if somebody had said to me, you know, I'll give you, I don't know, the bet is, could you get more than 15 students in a room together? I would have said, absolutely, I could get 15 students in a room together. Well, after three years, we had never gotten more than 14 students in a room together at one time. And we thought, well, you know what would be great would be to throw a party during the weekend that freshmen are moving in on the campus. And, um, but it's incredibly expensive to do that. But we finally had to make the decision, okay, either this is, this, the ministry is going to continue in social awkwardness, or we're going to raise some more money and throw a great party. And so we raised some more money and threw a great party, and we hired this barbecue company, and we got glow-in-the-dark and lawn games and music and all this stuff, and threw this party in the middle of campus as freshmen were moving into the dorms, and 200 students came out to have barbecue with us that night. And our ministry grew from 14 awkward but wonderful, let me say, <laughs> students, uh, to, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 students. And uh, a couple weeks later, I had the opportunity to grab coffee with a freshman guy named Garrett who had started coming to our ministry that fall. And I asked him, why'd you start coming um, to our ministry? And he said, well, I got to be honest, I'm a sucker for free food. And so when I heard about your party, I thought, uh, well, that sounds great, I'm there. And then I heard about your Bible study, and I thought it would probably be really, really lame. But you bought me free food, so the least I could do is come once. And he said, I thought you would sing Kumbaya, and it'd be really awful, and I would never come again, but you gave me free food, so, you know, it's the least I can do. And he said, so I came the first time, and honestly, the music was pretty cheesy. Um, but he said, your speech, I didn't really know what to do with. Um, this is not like blowing my own horn. It's because I talked about how I'm an angry driver and how Jesus is meeting me in my anger. <laughs> and Garrett said, it just never occurred to me that Jesus has something to do with the way that I drive my car. And I didn't know what to do with it, and so I kept coming back. And Garrett met Jesus that fall. It's impossible to build community without food. But with food, it's almost a sure thing. It's over food that strangers become friends and friends become family. This morning, we are beginning a new series of sermons called Let's Eat. And I just want to tell you why we're doing this. Um, why are we doing a sermon series on food? Well, the reason we're doing this is because, as I've told you over the last several months, our theme for 2018 is let's grow together as a church. And we want to grow up and in and out. We want to grow up in our relationship with God. 
We want to grow in as a community in our relationships with one another. And we want to grow outward in our love and service for our community. And we believe that all of those things happen best over food. Um, you know, as a church, I believe, we believe that God has a mission for our church here in Orange County. And I don't think that that mission is just that we need one more church in Orange County. Orange County is full of great churches. And the last thing we need is just one more that's maybe, you know, in a different location with different music or whatever. But I believe the reason that God has put our church here is because there are literally millions of people in Orange County that are disconnected from God. And, um, you know, why do we live in Orange County? We live in Orange County because we want to live beautiful, meaningful lives. We want to enjoy the sunshine. (laughs) And yet the reality of life for so many of us is that Uh, Life is busy and it's so expensive and we're trying to stay on top of everything and we're trying to be successful at work and we're trying to get the kids to their things on time. And and in the middle of it, the reality is that we we move to Orange County or we stay in Orange County because we want to live beautiful, meaningful lives and yet so much of the time we're just drowning in ourselves and our busyness and in our stuff. And I believe that God has put Resurrection OC here to be a lifeline to people who are just drowning in self. And so how are we going to do that? My goal in this series is to point you to the tool of food. (laughs) Uh, I don't really think that, you know, if I was to do a uh, a series on, okay, we're all going to go stand on the street corner with like our, get on our soapbox and shout at people about Jesus. Or we're going to go around and knock on our neighbor's doors neighbor's doors (laughs) Um, like there's probably one person crazy enough to actually do that with me maybe I don't know right so instead I want to point you to the tool of food I believe the best thing I can do to equip you to love your neighbors is to point you to the simple and powerful tool of food Without food, um, growth is impossible, right? Just physically, we will not grow. Our life cannot be sustained without nourishment, without food. And yet, I think food is just a small uh, metaphor uh, for the way that God provides life for us. Food, ultimately, eating is not just about getting calories into our body. There is so much that happens over a meal. Over food, strangers become friends. And friends become family. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to look at the series. Um, we're going to look at what the Bible says about food. And at first, I, I said this as sort of like joke. What if we just looked at everything the Bible says about food? Um, well, it turns out that would be impossible because it's almost on every page. Um, I mean, I just literally read the first chapter of the Bible, and in six weeks we're going to look at Revelation 19. So the Bible begins and opens, and almost everywhere in between talks about the way that God uses food to show us he loves us and to build community. Here's the point of this series. Over food, strangers become friends, and friends become in Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, we read about the word uh, of the world that God created, the world that God made, this beautiful world teeming with possibility and, and potential, and how he created human beings to live in it. 
And at the very end, at the climax of, of creation, it, it's strange because people, you know, we often say the climax of creation was when God created human beings, but actually on the sixth day, you see what we read? God creates human beings, and then the climax of creation ends on the sixth day with a menu, with God saying, look, look at all of this wonderful food I have created for you. Um, Genesis 1, 29, God, um, God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. Uh, I mean, this seems like it could almost be a throwaway line. It almost seems like it's such an obvious point. God created food. What are the implications of that? Well, it means, first of all, that, that we are dependent creatures. Um, with all of our learning, with all of our technology, with everything that the human race has achieved, we have never achieved self-sufficiency. You know, we come out of the womb hungry, needing to eat. And even Adam and Eve, in their innocence, the first human beings, before they rebelled against God, they're dependent on something outside of themselves to sustain life. This seems, I don't know, maybe this seems like a simple, obvious point, and yet it's so crucial because the reality is that for many of us, um, we're the kind of people where, hey, if you need help, I'm there for you. But we have a much harder time receiving help or asking for it. Some of us are terrible at receiving anything from anyone. But the simple fact is that we depend on food. And the simple fact that we depend on food is meant to show us that we cannot fill ourselves or sustain our own lives, but we are dependent on the God who gives life. He created food to sustain us. But it also means this. It means you have a God who loves you. You have a God who loves you. Uh, I suppose God could have created, like, blocks of nourishment with no flavor, you know, just bland. Uh, you know, it's just about getting the calories. No, it's not just about getting the calories into your body. God says, look at all that I have made for you. The world is full of good things to eat. You have a father who doesn't give you gruel. He gives you food. My wife um, loves to remind our kids at dinner. I think she said this last night. You know, dinner is about more than just eating. Uh, it's over family dinner that, that we talk, that we um, care for each other, that we express love and receive it, that we talk about how, um, you know, what's going on in your life, how was the day? What, what are you excited about? What went well today? What was upsetting? And it's over food that community is built. God have, could have just given us test tubes full of nourishment, but instead he gives us food, good things to eat. God giving us food is proof that food is not merely functional, but that you have a God who loves you. So God gave us food, and, um, and it isn't ironic and tragic that sin enters into the world through eating. Um, just two chapters later in Genesis 3, we read that Adam and Eve, our first parents, having been, been given uh, good food to eat by God, and told by God that there was only one tree in all of creation that was off limits to them. They took the fruit of that tree, and they ate. 
and sin, sin enters into the world and into our lives as we eat what God has forbidden. Listen, I think there's often this impression that um, to be holy or to be more like God is to kind of be this, I don't know, like person without passions, person without hungers, um, to be like an intellectual or a spiritual person who doesn't get caught up in the physicality of life. That idea is totally contrary to the Bible. Nothing could be further than the truth. God created us with bodies and with hungers. Our sin is not an eating. Adam and Eve sinned, not just because they ate, but because they ate what God had forbidden. They ate as if food would fill them and make them complete. And we do the same thing. See, our sin is not in the fact that we have hunger, but it's that in our hunger, uh, we will fill ourselves with anything and everything. The point that I want um, that I want you to hear is this: that our, our sin is not simply being dependent. It's not that we lack something. That's the way God created us. Our sin, rather, is that we chase misdirected hungers. We attempt to fill our emptiness with things that cannot truly satisfy us. So when we come home at the end of a long day, we've had a hard day at work. What do we do? I don't know what you do. I, I mean, we fill ourselves with anything, right? When we're feeling bad about ourselves, we fill ourselves with food. Uh, we try to fill ourselves with shopping. We try to fill ourselves with just watching you know, TV, Netflix, whatever, scrolling through our social media feed endlessly, hoping that that next thing, there's gonna be that little red thing that pops up that'll make us feel better about ourselves. We try to fill ourselves with anything and everything, hoping it will pick us up. Our hunger is not necessarily sin, but in our hunger, uh, our hunger was meant to lead us to the God who ultimately satisfies and who satisfies us with himself. Our hunger is not sin, but in our sin, we consume anything and everything in the desperate attempt to fill ourselves and find satisfaction. And the tragedy of that whole scenario is that we end up hurting ourselves. In our hunger, we, we fill ourselves with things that cannot satisfy and therefore they ultimately end up consuming us. I uh, heard the story about a woman who sleeps with a snake. And uh, this, this snake is not like a little gardener snake, it's not like a little worm, it's a massive boa constrictor. And this woman loves this snake. I hate snakes. This snake is her companion in life, she sleeps with it in her bed, and um, she's obsessed with the snake, and so one day she noticed the snake wasn't eating, eating anything. He hadn't thrown down a, you know, so much as a crumb in days. And she's concerned the snake is her life, and so she takes the snake to the vet, and um, the vet looks at the snake for oh, half a second and says, whenever a snake is about to eat really large prey, it stops eating so that it can make room. I don't think that's a true story. <laughs> but it's a good one. Because that is the essence of sin. That in our hunger, in our desire to be satisfied, we give ourselves to things that cannot satisfy and they end up eating us alive. We have a God who loves us. 
who gives us good things, who gives us good food to eat, and yet in our rebellion, we turn our back on him and say, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to fill myself with whatever I please, and yet it does not satisfy. It's like being surrounded by the ocean, and all we need is a drink of water. And the irony is that, you know, floating on a raft in the middle of the ocean, you're surrounded by water, and yet it will only make you more and more thirsty. That's what sin does. So how does God respond to our sin? Well, God doesn't respond the way that we do. I mean, how do you respond when somebody snubs you? I mean, there's all variety of, you know, anger, passive-aggressive, you know, comments, uh, giving people the cold shoulder. I mean, we all do it differently. But the thing that they all have in common is that when somebody kind of snubs us, rejects us, we distance ourselves. We back away. But God does not respond to our sin by distancing himself from us. In fact, he does just the opposite. We see this over and over again. On every page of the Bible, we see that God is a God who pursues his lost and wayward children. And you get these hints of this over and over again um, throughout the Old Testament. God patiently pursues us. Um, we're going to look at several of these over the next couple of weeks, but um, there's over and over again God waiting patiently, but he's dropping these little hints uh, that food is so central to everything that he's going to do. I mean, the Old Testament sacrificial system was, was an elaborate ritual that was built around food. It's about eating a meal with God. The, um, the, the feasts that God's people celebrated in the Old Testament, they were feasts. You know, they were meals. Um, these little hints over and over again until finally God shows up himself. And in Jesus, God comes and he takes on our flesh. He doesn't kind of come to earth and hover above it like a, like a ghost, but God actually takes on human flesh. He becomes one of us. He becomes dependent like we are. Jesus had to eat in order to physically sustain his life. And everywhere Jesus goes, isn't it interesting that he's always feeding people? He's showing up at parties. He's, um, he's loving sinners and rebels into the kingdom of God. Until ultimately on the night that he is betrayed, Jesus gathers with his disciples and he leaves us something to remember him by. And what does he leave? He doesn't leave like a photo album. He doesn't leave a plaque. He doesn't leave some words. I mean, you know, we have the words of Jesus, but what does Jesus do? He gives us a meal. The Lord's Supper, he says, as often as you celebrate this meal, you know, do this in remembrance of me. God himself eats with us. He shares a meal with us over something as simple and yet as powerful as Food, we get to know God. We experience his, his love and care. See, I said that it's over food that strangers become friends and friends become family. And that's what God is doing with you, with us. He is taking rebels, those of us who turned our back on him. And he's making us his friends and not just his friends, but his family. He's bringing us into his household. Jesus leaves us a meal to remember him by. 
He says, I want you to celebrate it often, and as you do, I want you to remember me. Remembering is how we, we celebrate, um, or remembering is how we build relationships. It's how we build culture and community. And that's why I started off by saying, remember, like think back to those great moments in your life, and they're all around food. What do we do as, as you know, friends, as family? We tell stories. Remember that one time? Remembering is central. And Jesus says, this is how I want you to remember me, by celebrating this meal. But intrinsic in the meal is remembering what it cost Jesus in order to bring us into the family of God. Jesus says, it's with my very body that is broken for you that I'm going to feed you. It's with my blood that is shed that I'm going to cleanse you of your sin." God brings us into his family over, over the course of a meal. But it's a meal that costs Jesus everything. I don't know if you have heard of or remember the movie Babette's Feast. It, uh, it won an Oscar in 1987. Um, it takes place in a, in a community in kind of rural Denmark. It's the story of a um, very strict, very... Um, severe, very pietistic Christian community. Um, kind of has an Amish feel. Everybody wears black. It's very uh, dour. <laughs> and um, this, this uh, woman named Babette is fleeing France. I think maybe it's, this is during the time of the French Revolution. And she, her husband and her son have been killed and she's fleeing and she comes to this community um, and the pastor's two old spinster daughters take her in, and they have, they have nothing to offer her, but um, Babette becomes their housekeeper. And for 14 years, Babette um, serves these two sisters. And her only connection back home to France is that every year a friend of hers buys her a lottery ticket. And after 14 years, Babette wins the lottery. And this message comes that she hasn't won all of this money and, and she decides that she wants to thank this community that has taken her in. And so she decides to, um, to host a feast for these sisters and for their community. And so she begins to, uh, to make arrangements and food begins to be delivered and fresh food is being brought in on boats and, and the community is increasingly uneasy about what's going to happen at this meal because they're afraid that this is going to be a luxuriously sinful uh, indulgence. But how could they just reject Babette's gift? And so the night comes and um, they've decided, this community has decided that... Um, they're going to eat the meal, but they're going to give up speaking of any pleasure during the meal. And they're going to make no mention of the food during dinner. And so there they are, eating this lavish feast in absolute silence. Until somebody slips up and he's so hungry, or it, you know, the food is so good that his spoon scrapes the bottom of a bowl. And it kind of creates this outburst and then somebody burps and somebody else says amen and by the end of it they're singing joyfully probably for the first time ever hymns that they send that they sing in church 
And this meal has been so wonderful and so uh, life-giving that it's totally changed this community's view of Babette. And so they are sad because now that she's a rich woman, she's, she's going to leave them. Until Babette discovers, uh, Bill Babette tells them, no, I'm not going to be going anywhere. And they said, well, why not? She said, well, everything I won, I just spent on that meal. And that's what we're celebrating when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In just a minute, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And this is the most expensive meal that you will ever eat. It doesn't cost you anything. The price was so high that it could only be paid by God himself. It doesn't cost you anything, but it cost Jesus everything. And yet we don't come to the Lord's table kind of beating ourselves up, trying to somehow earn um, this. Jesus says this is a celebration. This is a celebration. This is a clear picture of God's lavish love for you. When you rebelled against God, he pursued you. When you look to other things to satisfy your hunger, he comes and says, I know you, I created you, I love you. I know how you work best, and therefore I want to be the one who satisfies you. God is the giver of all good gifts. He loves you, and so he gives you food. And he invites you to come and to eat at a table where strangers become friends, and friends become strangers. So very quickly, if that's true, if God is the one who gives good food to his people. Well, what should we do about that? I want to tell you that this is going to be the easiest sermon application you will ever hear, because here's what I want you to do. I want you to eat, okay? (laughs) I want you to eat. I want you to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This morning and every Sunday uh, in the next six weeks, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and I want you to come and be fed I want you to be filled with the presence of Jesus as he gives himself to you. But secondly, I want you to eat at home. I want you to eat dinner with your family. You know, one of the the ironies of life and the culture that we live in is that we have more and more, and yet we experience less and less. And our our busyness... um, Well, let me just read this. This is a book called The Price of Privilege by a uh, psychologist named Madeline Levine. Madeline Levine says this, perhaps the single most important ritual a family can observe is having dinner together. Families who eat together five or more times a week have kids who are significantly less likely to use tobacco, alcohol, or marijuana, have higher grade point averages, less depressive symptoms, and fewer suicide attempts than families who eat together two or fewer times a week. Eating together reinforces the idea that family members are interested, available, and concerned about each other. It provides a reliable time and place for kids to share accomplishments, challenges, and worries, to check in with parents and siblings, or simply to feel a part of the family. Isn't it ironic that in a place where we have the ability to do so much that what we're actually missing out on is eating dinner together as a family. 
And as we shuttle our kids from thing to thing and throw fast food at them in the back of the minivan, we're actually harming each other because we're not taking the time to sit down and eat together. So I want to encourage you to eat together as a family. And then finally, I want you to eat together. Like as a church, to um, invite someone to go out to lunch with you today or to invite somebody to come over next week for lunch or whenever. I mean, you're adults. You can figure these things out. (laughs) You're smart people. And then finally, when you eat, I want to encourage you to give thanks. Despite all that we've been able to accomplish, we have never figured out how to sustain our own lives. And so when we eat together, I want to encourage you simply to pause and give thanks to the God who loves you and who gave you food. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are the one that gives us every good gift. Thank you that you give us life. Thank you that you give us breath. Thank you that you give us food. God, would you cause us to be people um, who celebrate because you have given everything in order not just to um, know who we are, but to bring us into your family. God, as we um, turn to the Lord's Supper now, would you help us to come joyfully celebrating what Jesus has done for us, remembering his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf? Would you take these uh, simple elements of bread and wine and use them uh, to fill us with your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. I want to read a, a section um, out of a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a, a collection of uh, prayers by, I think, Puritan authors. And uh, this last week, as I was um, uh, just in my devotional time, was reading this prayer on the, the fullness of Christ. It says this, O oh God, you have taught me that Christ has all fullness, and all that I lack in myself is in him. He, having perfect knowledge, grace, and righteousness, makes me righteous and gives me his fullness. Therefore, it is my duty, out of of a sense of my emptiness, to go to Christ, to possess and enjoy his fullness as mine, as if I had it in myself, because because it is for me in him. As we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to remind you that everything Jesus has done, he has done on behalf of his people. And so Jesus, who um, is the possessor of the fullness of God himself, gives his life up in order to fill you, to satisfy you, to sustain you. It was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks to it, he broke it, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you, take and eat. And after they had eaten, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. For as often as you take the bread and you drink the cup, 
you proclaim my death until I come again. We're going to come forward in groups of oh, 10 or 12 people or so, and Sam and I will serve one group. We'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper together, and then that group will come for, uh, go back, and the next group will come forward. Um, just a couple of notes. So there, there is regular gluten and gluten-free bread. There is alcoholic and non-alcoholic wine. The wine is red. The grape juice is white. Uh, feel free to take whichever you prefer. Let me pray as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Oh God, would you give us full hearts as we come to your table this morning, as we come and meet with you and with one another, uh, would you help us to come with smiles on our faces because Jesus emptied himself in order to make us full. We pray this in your name. Amen.